9. His question was to the point, but there are several ways of overcoming one's adversary, I began feeling in my pocket for pence, my enemy ceased glaring, stepped up to the locked gate as though he half wished to be friendly, and there was sorrow in his voice, don't tempt me, sir or, don't do you tea, the missus is peeking out of the shutters at us now, and do you never admit visitors, even to the grounds, Mumber, sir or, never, God help me, and there's many an honest bob I could turn my UT, and no one heard, but I've lost my place twit my UT, they took me back though, the governor UD never forgive me again, it's three times and out, Mr. Hopkins, says E.E., only last wits a tide, but visitors do come, yes, sir or, but they never gets in mostly mercans, they don't know no better, sir or, they picks all the ivy off the outside of the wall, and you sees yourself there's no leaves on the lower branches of that tree. Then they carries away so many pebbles from out there that I've to dump in a fresh wheelbarrow full o' gravel every week. Sir, don't you know? He thrust a pudgy, freckled hand through the bars of the gate to show that he bore me no ill will. And also, I suppose, to mollify my disappointment. For although I had come too late to see the great poet himself and had even failed to see the inside of his house, yet I had at least been greeted at the gate by his proxy. I pressed the hand firmly, pocketed a handful of gravel as a memento, then turned and went my way. And all there is to tell about my visit to Rival Mount is this interview with the bouncer. Wordsworth lived eighty years. His habitation, except for short periods, was never more than a few miles from his birthplace. His education was not extensive, his learning not profound, he lacked humor and passion, in his character there was little personal magnetism, and in his work there is small dramatic power, he traveled more or less and knew humanity, but he did not know man, his experience in so-called practical things was slight, his judgment not accurate, so he lived quietly, modestly, dreamily, his dust rests in a country churchyard, the grave marked by a simple slab, a gnarled, Old yew tree stands guard above the grass-grown mound. The nearest railroad is fifteen miles away. As a poet, Wordsworth stands in the front rank of the second class. Shelley, Browning, Mrs. Browning, Tennyson, far surpass him, and the sweet singer of Michigan, even in an inspired moments, never threw off anything worse than this, and he is lean and he is sick, his body, dwindled and awry, rests upon ankle swollen and thick, his legs are thin and dry. One prop he has, and only one, his wife, an aged woman, lives with him near the waterfall, upon the village common, Jove may not, but when he makes a move it counts, yet the influence of Wordsworth upon the thought and feeling of the world has been very great, he himself said, the young will read my poems and be better for their truth, many of his lines pass as current coin, the child is father of the man, the light that never was on land nor sea not too bright and good for human nature's daily food, thoughts that do light too deep for tears, the mighty stream of tendency, and many others, plain living and high thinking, is generally given to Emerson, but he discovered it in Wordsworth, and recognizing it as his own he took it, in a certain book of quotations, the still sad music of humanity, is given to Shakespeare, but to equalize matters we sometimes attribute to Wordsworth, the old oaken bucket, the men who win are those who correct and abuse. Wordsworth's work was a protest mild yet firm against the bombastic and artificial school of the 18th century. Before his day the timber used by poets consisted of angels, devils, ghosts, gods, onslaught, 
tyrannies, jests, tempests of hate and torrents of wrath. All was of course with a very beautiful and very susceptible young lady just around the corner. The women in those days were always young and ever beautiful, but seldom wise and not often good. The men were saints or else bad, generally bad, like the cats of Kilkenny. They thought on slight cause. Our young man at Hawkshead School saw this, it pleased him not, and he made a list of the things on which he would write poems. This list includes, sunset, moonrise, starlight, mist, brooks, shells, stones, butterflies, moths, swallows, linnets, thrushes, wagoners, babies, bark of trees, leaves, nests, fishes, rushes, leeches, cobwebs, clouds, deer, music, shade, swans, crags and snow. He kept his vow and went it one better. For among his verses I find the following titles, lines left upon a seat in a yew tree, lines composed a few miles above Tintern Abbey, to a wounded butterfly, to Dora's portrait, to the cuckoo, on seeing an eagle but made in the shape of a harp, etc. Wordsworth's service to humanity consists in the fact that he has shown us old truth in a new light and has made plain the close relationship that exists between physical nature and the soul of man. Is this much or little? I think it is much. When we realize that we are a part of all that we see, or hear, or feel, we are not lonely. But to feel a sense of separation is to feel the chill of death. Wordsworth taught that the earth is the universal mother and that the life of the flower has its source in the same universal life from whence ours is derived. To know this truth is to feel a tenderness a kindliness, a spirit of fraternalism, toward every manifestation of this universal life. No attempt was made to say the last word, only a wish to express the truth that the spirit of God is manifest on every hand. Now this is a very simple philosophy, no far-reaching, syllogistic logic is required to prove it, no miracle, nor special dispensation is needed, you just feel that it is so, that's all, and it gives you peace. Children, foolish folks, Old men, whose sands of life are nearly run, comprehend it. But heaven bless you, you can't prove any such foolishness. Jeffrey saw the ridiculousness of these assumptions and so he declared, This will never do. And for twenty years, the Edinburgh Review never ceased to fling off fleers and jeers and to criticize and scoff. That a great periodical, rich and influential, in the city which was the very center of learning, should go so much out of its way to attack a quiet countryman living in a four-room cottage, away off in the hills of Cumberland, seems a little queer. Then, this countryman did not seek to found a kingdom, nor to revolutionize society, nor did he force upon the world his pappy pong rhymes about linnets, and larks, and daffodils. Far from it, he was very modest diffident, in fact and his song was quite in the minor key. But still the chain shot and bombs of literary warfare were sent hissing in his direction. There is a little story about a certain general who figured as division commander in the War of Secession. This warrior had his headquarters, for a time, in a typical southern home in the Tennessee mountains. The house had a large fireplace and chimney. In this chimney, swallows had nests. One day, as the great man was busy at his maps, working out a plan of campaign against the enemy, the swallows made quite an uproar. Perhaps some of the eggs were hatching, anyway. The birds were needlessly noisy in their domestic affairs, and it disturbed the great man he grew nervous. He called his adjutant. Sir, said the mighty warrior, dislodge those damn guests in the chimney, without delay. 
Two soldiers were ordered to climb the roof and dislodge the enemy. Yet the swallows were not dislodged, for the soldiers could not reach them. So Jeffrey's tirades were unavailing, and Wordsworth was not dislodged. He might as well try to crush Skidda, said Southey. William M. Thackeray to Mr. Brookfield September 16, 1849 Have you read Dickens? Oh, it is charming. Brave Dickens. David Copperfield has some of his prettiest touches, and the reading of the book has done another author a great deal of good. WMT. There are certain good old ladies in every community who wear perennial mourning. They attend every funeral, carrying black-bordered handkerchiefs, and weep gently at the right time. I have made it a point to hunt out these ancient dames at their homes, and, over the teacups, I have discovered that invariably they enjoy a sweet piece of happiness with contentment that is a great gain. They seem to be civilization's rudimentary relic of the Irish peeners and the paid mourners of the Orient, and there is just a little of this tendency to mourn with those who mourn in all mankind. It is not difficult to bear another's woe and then there is always a grain of mitigation, even in the sorrow of the afflicted that makes their tribulation bearable. Burke affirms, in, on the sublime, that all men take a certain satisfaction in the disasters of others, just as Frenchmen lift their hats when a funeral passes and thank God that they are not in the hearse. So do we in the presence of calamity thank heaven that it is not ours. Perhaps this is why I get a strange delight from walking through a graveyard by night. All about are the white monuments that glisten in the ghostly starlight. The night winds sigh softly among the grassy mounds all else is silent still. This is the city of the dead, and of all the hundreds or thousands who have traveled to this spot over long and weary miles, I only I have the power to leave at will. Their ears are stopped, their eyes are closed, their hands are folded but I am alive. One of the first places I visited on reaching London was Kensal Green Cemetery. I quickly made the acquaintance of the first gravedigger, a rare wit over whose gray head have passed full seventy pleasant summers. I presented him a copy of The Shroud, the organ of the American Undertakers Association, published at Syracuse, New York. I subscribed for The Shroud because it has a bright wit and humor column, and also for the sweet satisfaction of knowing that there is still virtue left in Syracuse. The first gravedigger greeted me courteously, and when I explained briefly my posthumous predilections we grasped hands across an open grave that he had just digged and were fast friends. Do you believe in cremation, sir? He asked. Mumber never, it's pagan. Aye. You are a gentleman and about burying folks in churches? Never. A grave should be out under the open sky. Where the sun by day and the moon and stars, right you are. How Shakespeare can ever stand it to have his grave walked over by a boy choir is more than I can understand. If I had him here I could look after him right. Come, I'll show you the company I keep. Not twenty feet from where we stood was a fine but plain granite block to the memory of the second wife of James Russell Lowell. Just Mr. Lowell and one friend stood by the grave when we lowered the coffin just two men and no one else but the young clergyman who belongs here. Mr. Lowell shook hands with me when he went away. He gave me a guinea and wrote me two letters afterward from America, the last was sent only a week before he died. I'll show him to you when we go to the office. Say, did you know him? He pointed to a slab, on which I read the name of Sidney Smith. Then we went to the graves of Mulready, the painter, Kemble, the actor, Sir Charles Eastlake, the artist. Next came the resting place of Buckle Immortal for writing a preface dead at 37, with his history unread, Lee Hunt sleeps near. 
and about his dusty column that explains how it was erected by friends. In life he asked for bread, when dad they gave him a costly pile of stone. Here are also the graves of Madame Titians, of Charles Matthews, the actor, and of Admiral Sir John Ross, the Arctic explorer. And just down the hill a ways another big man is buried. I knew him well, he used to come and visit us often. The last time I saw him I said as he was going away, Come again, sir, you are always welcome. Thank you, Mr. First Gravedigger, says he, I will come again before long, and make you an extended visit. In less than a year the hearse brought him. That's his grave push that hidey away and you can read the inscription. Did you ever hear of him? It was a plain, heavy slab placed horizontally, and the ivy had so run over it that the white of the marble was nearly obscured. But I made out this inscription, William Makepeace Thackeray born July 18th, 1811 died December 24th, 1863 and Carmichael Smith died December 18th, 1864, aged 72 his mother by her first marriage the unpoetic exactness of that pedigree gave me a slight chill, but here they sleep mother and son in one grave, she who gave him his first caress also gave him his last, and when he was found dead in his bed, his mother, who lived under the same roof, was the first one called, he was the child of her girlhood she was scarcely twenty when she bore him, in life they were never separated, and in death they are not divided, it is as both desired, Thackeray was born in India, and was brought to England on the death of his father, when he was six years of age, on the way from Calcutta the ship touched at the island of St. Helena, a servant took the lad ashore and they walked up the rocky heights to Longwood, and there, pacing back and forth in a garden, they saw a short, stout man, looky, lad, looky quick that's him, he eats three sheep every day and all the children he can get, and that's all I had to do with the battle of Waterloo, said old Thack, forty years after, but you will never believe it after reading those masterly touches concerning the battle, in Vanity Fair, young Thackeray was sent to the Charter House School, where he was considered rather a dull boy, he was big and good-natured, and read novels when he should have studied arithmetic. This tendency to play off stuck to him at Cambridge where he did not remain long enough to get a degree, but to the relief of his tutors went off on a tour through Europe. Travel as a means of education is a very seductive bit of sophistry. Invalids whom the doctors cannot cure, and scholars whom teachers cannot teach, are often advised to take a change. Still there is reason in it. In England Thackeray was intent on law, at Paris he received a strong bent toward art, but when he reached Weimar and was introduced at the court of lepers and came into the living presence of Goethe, he caught the infection and made a plan for translating Schiller. Schiller dead was considered in Germany a greater man than Goethe living, as if it were an offense to love and a virtue to die, and young William Makepeace wrote home to his mother that Schiller was the greatest man that ever lived and that he was going to translate his books and give them to England. No doubt there are certain people born with a tendency to infectiousness in regard to certain diseases, so there are those who catch the literary mania on slight exposure. I've got it, said Thackeray, and so he had. He went back to England and made groggy efforts at Blackstone, and somebody's digest, and what's his name's compendium. But all the time he scribbled and sketched, the young man had come into possession of a goodly fortune from his father's estate enough to yield him an income of over $2,000 a year. But bad investments and signing security for friends took the money the way that money usually goes when held by a man who has not earned it. Talk about riches having wings. 
said Thackeray, my fortune had pinions like a condor, and flew like a carrier pigeon. When Thackeray was thirty he was eking out a meager income writing poems, reviews, criticisms and editorials. His wife was a confirmed invalid, a victim of mental darkness, and his sorrows and anxieties were many. He was known as a bright writer, yet London is full of clever and successful men. But in Thackeray's 38th year, Vanity Fair came out, and it was a success from the first. In Yesterdays with Authors, Mr. Fields says, I once made a pilgrimage with Thackeray to the various houses where his books had been written, and I remember when we came to Young Street, Kensington, he said, with mock gravity, down on your knees, you rogue, for here, Vanity Fair, was penned, and I will go down with you, for I have a high opinion of that little production myself. Young Street is only a block from the Kensington Metropolitan Railway Station. It is a little street running off Kensington Road, at number 16 formerly number 13. I saw a card in the window, rooms to rent to single gentlemen. I rang the bell, and was shown a room that the landlady offered me for 12 shillings a week if I paid in advance, or if I would take another room one flight up with a gent who was studying hard, it would be only 8 and 6. I suggested that we go up and see the gent. We did so, and I found the young man very courteous and polite. He told me that he had never heard Thackeray's name in connection with the house. The landlady protested that no man by the name of Thackeray has had rooms here since I rented the place, leastwise. If he has been here he called himself by something else, which was like enough the case. As most everybody is crooked nowadays but surely no decent person can blame me for that. I assured her that she was in no wise to blame. From this house in Young Street the author of Vanity Fair moved to number 36 on Slow Square, where he wrote, The Virginians. On the south side of the square there is a row of three-storied brick houses. Thackeray lived in one of these houses for nine years. They were the years when honors and wealth were being heaped upon him, and he was worldly enough to let his wants keep pace with his ability to gratify them. He was made of the same sort of clay as other men for his standard of life conformed to his pocketbook and he always felt poor. From this fine house on Onslow Square he moved to a veritable palace, which he built to suit his own taste. At number 2 Palace Green, Kensington. But mansions on earth for seldom for long he died here on Christmas Eve, 1863. And Charles Dickens, Mark Lemon, Millay, Trollope, Robert Browning, Crookshank, Tom Taylor, Louis Blanc, Charles Matthews and Shirley Brooks were among the friends who carried him to his rest. To take oneself too seriously is a great mistake. Complacency is the unpardonable sin. And the man who says, now I'm sure of it, has at that moment lost it. Villagers who have lived in one little place until they think themselves great, having lost the sense of proportion through lack of comparison, are generally in dead earnest. Surely they are often intellectually dead. And I do not dispute the fact that they are in earnest. All those excellent gentlemen in the days gone by who could not contemplate a celestial bliss that did not involve the damnation of those who disagreed with them were in dead earnest. Cotton Mather once saw a black cat perched on the shoulder of an innocent, chattering old grandma. The next day a neighbor had a convulsion, and Cotton Mather went forth and exorcised Tabby with a hymn book, and hanged grandma by the neck, high on Gallows Hill, until she was dead. Had the Reverend Mr. Mather possessed but a mere modicum of humor he might have exorcised the cat, but I am sure he would never have troubled old grandma. But alas, Cotton Mather's conversation was limited to yea, yea, and nay. 
nay generally, nay, nay and he was in dead earnest. In the Boston Public Library is a book written in 1685 by Cotton Mather, entitled, Wonders of the Invisible World. This book received the endorsement of the governor of the province and also of the president of Harvard College. The author cites many cases of persons who were bewitched, and also makes the interesting statement that the devil knows Greek, Latin and Hebrew, but speaks English with an accent. These facts were long used at Harvard as an argument in favor of the classics, and when Greek was at last made optional, the devil was supposed to have filed a protest with the dean of the faculty, the Reverend Francis Gastrell, who raised new place, and cut down the poet's mulberry tree to escape the importunities of visitors was in debt earnest, Edla, and Herod, and John Calvin were in debt earnest, and were it not for the fact that Luther had lucid intervals when he went about with his tongue in his cheek he surely would have worked grievous wrong. Recent discoveries in Egyptian archaeology show that in his lifetime Moses was esteemed more as a whip than as a lawmaker. His jokes were posted upon the walls and explained to the populace, who it seems were a bit slow. Job was a humorist of a high order. And when he said to the wise men, No doubt but ye are the people, and wisdom shall die with you. He struck twelve. When the sons of Jacob went down into Egypt and Joseph put up the price of corn, took their money, and then secretly replaced the coin in the sacks, he showed his artless love of a quiet joke. Shakespeare's fools were the wisest and kindliest men at court. When the master decked a character in cap and bells, it was as though he had given bonds for the man's humanity. Touchstone followed his master into exile, and when all seemed to have forsaken Kinlear the fool bared himself to the storm and covered the shaking old man with his own cloak. And if Costard, Trinculo, Touchstone, Jakes and Mercutio had lived in Salem in 1692, there would have been not only a flashing of merry jests, but a flashing of rapiers as well, and every grey hair of every old dame's head would have been safe so long as there was a striped leg on which to stand. Lincoln. Liberator of men, love the molly. In fact, the individual who is incapable of viewing the world from a jocular basis is unsafe, and can be trusted only when the opposition is strong enough to laugh him into a line. In the realm of English letters, Thackeray is prince of humorists. He could see right through a brick wall, and never mistook a clock for a hernshaw. He had a just estimate of values, and the temperament that can laugh at all trivial misfits, and he had, too that dread capacity for pain which every true humorist possesses, for the true essence of humor is sensibility. In all literature that lives there is mingled like pollen an indefinable element of the author's personality. In Thackeray's lectures on English humorists, this subtle quality is particularly apparent, elusive, delicate, alluring it is the actinic ray that imparts vitality, when with play skittles with dullness, dullness gets revenge by taking with it his word. Vast numbers of people taking Thackeray at his word and consider him a bitter pessimist. He even disconcerted bright little Charlotte Bronte, who went down to London to see him, and then wrote back to Hayworth that the great man talked steadily with never a smile. I could not tell when to laugh and when to cry, for I did not know what was fun and what fact. But finally the author of Jane Eyre found the combination, and she saw that beneath the brusque exterior of that bulky form there was a woman's tender sympathy. Thackeray has told us what he thought of the author of Jane Eyre, and the author of Jane Eyre has told us what she thought of the author of Vanity Fair. One was big and whimsical, the other was little and sincere, but both were alike in this, their hearts were to run at the sight of suffering, 
and both had cares for the erring, the groping, and the oppressed. A Frenchman cannot comprehend a joke that is not accompanied by grimace and gesticulation, and so entain chases Thackeray through sixty solid pages, berating him for what he is pleased to term bottled hate. Tang is a cynic who charges Thackeray with cynicism, all in the choicest of biting phrase. It is a beautiful example of sinners calling the righteous to repentance a thing that is often done, but seldom with artistic finish. The fun is too deep for Monsieur, or mayhap the brand is not the yellow label to which his palate is accustomed, so he spews it all. Yet Tain's criticism is charming reading, although he is only hot after an aniseed trail of his own dragging, but the chase is a deal more exciting than most men would lead. Word are their real live game to capture, if pushed. I might suggest several points in this man's makeup where God could have bettered his work, but accepting Thackeray as we find him, we see a singer whose cage fate had overhung with black until he had caught the tune. The ballad of Bulabes shows a tender side of his spirit that he often sought to conceal. His heart vibrated to all finer thrills of mercy, and his love for all created things was so delicately strung that he would, in childish shame, sometimes issue a growl to drown its rising fearful tones, in the character of Becky Sharp, he has marshaled some of his own weak points and then lashed them with scorn, he looked into the mirror and seeing a potential snob he straightway invade against snobbery, the punishment does not always fit the crime it is excess, but I still contest that where his ridicule is most severe, it is Thackeray's own back that is bared to the knout, the primal recipe for roguery in Art Island, know thyself, when a writer portrays a villain and does it well make no mistake, he poses for the character himself, said gentle Ralph Waldo Emerson, I have capacity in me for every crime, the man of imagination knows those mystic spores of possibility that lie dormant, and like the magicians of the east who grow mango trees in an hour, he develops the inward potential, at will, the mere artisan in letters goes forth and finds a villain and then describes him, but the artist knows a better way, I am that man, one of the very sweetest, gentlest characters in literature is Colonel Newcomb, the stepfather of Thackeray, Major Carmichael Smith, was made to stand for the portrait of the lovable Colonel, and when that all-round athlete, F. Hopkinson Smith, gave us that other lovable old Colonel he paid high tribute to, the Newcombs, Thackeray was a poet, and as such was often caught in the toils of doubt the crux of the inquiring spirit, he aspired for better things, and at times his imperfections stood out before him in monstrous shape, and he sought to hiss them down. In the heart of the artist-poet there is an inmost self that sits over against the acting, breathing man and passes judgment on his every deed. To satisfy the world is little, to please the populace is naught, fame is vapor, gold is dross, and every love that has not the sanction of that inmost self is a viper's sting. To satisfy the demands of the god within is the poet's prayer. What doubts beset, what taunting fears surround, what crouching sorrows lie in wait, what dead hopes drag, what hot desires pursue, and what kindly lights do beckon on God, tis we musicians know, Thackeray came to America to get a pot of money, and was in a fair way of securing it, when he chanced to pick up a paper in which a steamer was announced to sail that evening for England, a wave of homesickness swept over the big boy he could not stand it, he hastily packed up his effects and without saying goodbye to anyone, and forgetting all his engagements, he hastened to the dock, leaving this note for the kindest of kind friends, goodbye, Fields, goodbye, Mrs. Fields God bless everybody, says WMT, Charles Dickens I hope for the enlargement of my mind, 
and for the improvement of my understanding, if I have done but little good, I trust I have done less harm, and that none of my adventures will be other than a source of amusing and pleasant recollection. God bless you all. Pickwick the path of progress in certain problems seems barred as by a flaming sword. More than a thousand years before Christ, an Arab chief asked, If a man die shall he live again? Every man who ever lived has asked the same question. But we know no more today about the subject than did Job. There are 105 boy babies born to every 100 girls. The law holds in every land where vital statistics have been kept, and Sari Gant knew just as much about the cause why as Brown Secord, Pasteur, Agnew or Austin Flint. There is still a third question that every parent, since Adam and Eve, has sought to solve, how can I educate this child so that he will attain eminence? And even in spite of shelves that groan beneath tomes and tomes, and advice from a million preachers, the answer is, nobody knows. There is a divinity that shapes our ends. Refew them how we will. Moses was sent adrift. But the tide carried him into power. The brethren of Joseph deposited him into a cavity. But you cannot dispose of genius that way. Demosthenes was weighted or blessed with every disadvantage. Shakespeare got into difficulty with a woman eight years his senior. Stole deer. Ran away. And became the very first among English poets. Erasmus was a foundling. Once there was a woman by the name of Nancy Hanks, she was thin-breasted, gaunt, yellow and sad, at last, living in poverty, overworked, she was stricken by death, she called her son homely as herself and pointing to the lad's sister said, be good to her, Abe, and died died, having no expectation for her boy beyond the hope that he might prosper in worldly affairs so as to care for himself and his sister. The boy became a man who wielded wisely a power mightier than that ever given to any other American. Seven college-bred men composed his cabinet, and Proctor not once said that, if a teeter were evenly balanced, and the members of the cabinet were all placed on one end, and the president on the other, he would send the seven wise men flying into space. On the other hand, Marcus Aurelius wrote his meditations for a son who did not read them, and whose name is a symbol of profligacy. Charles Kingsley penned Greek heroes for offspring who have never shown their father's heroism, and Charles Dickens wrote A Child's History of England for his children none of whom has proven his proficiency in historiology. Charles Dickens himself received his education at the University of Hard Knocks. Very early in life he was cast upon the rocks and settled by the she-wolf, yet he became the most popular author the world has ever known and up to the present time no writer of books has approached him in point of number of readers and of financial returns. These are facts facts so hard and true that they would be the delight of Mr. Gratrand. At twelve years of age, Charles Dickens was pasting labels on blacking boxes, his father was in prison. At sixteen, he was spending odd hours in the reading room of the British Museum. At nineteen, he was parley.